1 Corinthians chapter 5, and that's verses 1 through to 13. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. So that's 2 Corinthians 2, verses 5 to 11. Immoral brother. It is actually reported that there is sexual immoral immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife and you are proud of it. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy or idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wickedness, no, sorry, expel the wicked man from among you. And then we go on to 2 Corinthians 2 verses um, 5 to 11. Forgiveness for the sinner. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you, to some extent not to put it too severely. The punishment if inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love to, for him. The reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there, is, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Welcome back. 
We're on to our fourth and final session for this weekend. Uh, and if you feel like there are still many things for us to look at, that's true. Some of them we'll be able to look at uh, in this next session. There were more questions uh, that came uh, between the two sessions this morning. They'll be answered somewhat, but there are still more things for us to look at. Just again, the reminder. I guess at one level you could say, why does he keep banging on about sin? And why does he keep on reminding us about this? I think that the reason why we need to remind ourselves so much about this is that firstly, the nature of sin itself is to deny God, to deny his goodness towards us, to distrust him, to desire, to displace him and so on. It is so much the case that we will accept any other definition of sin which doesn't actually bring this out. The second reason is that there are times in Christian history uh, when part of what the Bible says about sin will become so prominent in our understanding uh, that we forget that the Bible gives us lots of pictures which go together so that we understand the full weight and import and impact of sin. Perhaps at one level, the worst one to get fixated on, if we're going to get fixated on one and one only, is just the legal understanding. Now, it's really important for us to have that legal understanding, to understand what justification is in Christ and what he's done. But it takes us so far towards an impersonal, infraction-based understanding of sin that it really robs us of the whole understanding of what the Bible is talking about. So that's why I want to keep on reminding us that what happens in sin is that the one who loves us, who created a perfect world for us, and who has in store for the creatures he has made a heavenly banquet that is beyond imagining, that is the one who we act against in sin, in all sin. And so that's why I want to keep on underlining that for us. He is loving, and we'll see that again. He is holy, and he is righteous. <clears throat> We're going to return now <clears throat> to look at this pattern and we're going to apply it in the obvious situation that we haven't looked at, the situation of unrepentance. Okay. Part of my personal journey in understanding forgiveness came uh, to a really... A very helpful point one night. Uh, we had visiting us the daughter of some missionary friends. Now, I'm not going to give you her name and nor am I going to give you the situation, partly because of deference to her. So it's going to be a bit of a sort of roundabout way of talking about a person and their situation. Uh, this daughter uh, was at university and she was at university back in her parents' home country. She had lived most of her life uh, outside of that country of which she was a citizen. Uh, 
She came to us because, as she was studying at university, she shared a room uh, with another Christian girl. One day, as she was walking around the campus, she saw a lecturer, a lecturer the sight of whom chilled her blood. She was absolutely convinced at first sight, and more so as she got to see this lecturer again and again at the university, that this lecturer was one of the military generals who, in the country where she had spent her teenage years, had been part of a dictatorship where she, in the town that she and her parents lived in, had seen people shot dead in the street by the military. She had been in houses visiting friends when soldiers had come in and raped the women in the houses in front of the children. She herself had been walking down the main street of the town uh, when a guy who was a well-known protester and who dressed as a clown so that he was very um, easily recognisable was running down this main street. She could hear the hubbub of the military following after him and she heard the shot and saw him stumble forwards and caught him in her arms as he dropped dead in front of her. That general was now living free, lecturing in the university at which she was a student. She couldn't believe it. She eventually told her roommate and her roommate said to her, you must forgive him. You must forgive him. When she came to have dinner with us that night, that was her question. It came initially from her reaction, that's impossible. And it developed into, why should I? And so all that I had been thinking about over the years about forgiveness as I started to try and put together what God tells us in his word came to its acid test in that conversation that night. Question after question after question after question and then answer and further answer and further answer and further answer from me. Just before 3am she said, I think that's all my questions. You can take me home now. What we understand out of scripture needs to be applied in life. And if it just doesn't work in life, then we've got two options open to us. The first is to say, well, that just goes to show you how inadequate the Bible is. The second option is to say, there must be a lot more Bible that I need to understand in order to live in this world. Our big problem when we come to forgiving sin has got to do with those who are unrepentant. Now, I should actually say one of our really big problems. I think just in our brief look at forgiveness and repentance acting together, um, in the brief time that I gave you, you could start to see, and you know in yourselves, how difficult it is to forgive, how difficult it is to repent, how difficult it is to be reconciled with others in an ongoing way.
However, if we don't distinguish between an repent, a repentant wrongdoer and an unrepentant wrongdoer, then we won't be acting in the way that God does. Firstly, we need to be really clear uh, on what the unrepentant person is saying, thinking and doing. For the unrepentant person, there is no change of mind, there is no change of heart. Okay? For the unrepentant person, there is no change of mind, there is no change of heart. And we see it played out when the person repeatedly does in a relationship that evil thing. And the person thinks that that's right. That is what they are going to do. Perhaps internally they might have a debate going on. Perhaps internally they might be both self-accusing and self-justifying, but there is no change of mind, there is no change of heart. The unrepentant person, we could turn it round and state it positively, the unrepentant person says, I will continue to do wrong and call it right. I will continue to relate to you in that way. That's what the unrepentant person is saying. And it's important for us to recognise that we cannot offer to the unrepentant person something that God does not offer. God does not offer his forgiveness to the unrepentant person. Now imagine this. I don't know if you've kind of thought about heaven, right? Um, <clears throat> let's not take it from the kind of geographical areas. Let's bring it all to the banquet table. There are no people at the banquet table who are sitting this way, with the table behind them, with the lamb and God there. There are no people like that at the banquet table. There are no neighbours who you might be sitting next to to whom you could say, what are you doing here? And have them say to you, well, wouldn't you believe it? All those, all those liberals, they were right. God does justify everyone. It doesn't matter whether you're unrepentant or repentant. He just brings you here. We don't want to be here, but look at what he's done. It's so terrible. I knew I turned away from him. It was absolutely what I did. I want still to be turned away from him. I just don't want to be here. There aren't any of those in heaven. All right? God brings the repentant sinner back into relationship with himself. The unrepentant sinner, the unrepentant sinner finds God as the unremitting punisher. God does not bring the unrepentant into relationship with himself. Just try to hug a person who is resolutely and defiantly turned away from you. Just try and start a trend of saying marriage vows turned away. Well, we could make it even worse, couldn't we? We could have, here's the couple who are going to be married. Let's turn them away and, and let's put the member of the opposite sex who they've turned away to. I mean, that's what unrepentant is. Okay? So... 
it really then raises the question for us, what does God do with the unrepentant? Sometimes we see a bit of a subterfuge, a bit of a sleight of hand, a bit of phony relating going on. It's often seen in the Old Testament. God punishes Israel, so Israel starts offering sacrifices again. And the prophets we read in different prophets in different places, God's saying, why does this people offer sacrifices to me when their hearts are turned away? Their sacrifices, they're not the pleasing aroma of the barbecue, they're a stench in his nostrils. Okay? So, what does God do with the unrepentant? And I guess there could be two answers. What will God finally do with the unrepentant? Well, I've already said what God will finally do with the unrepentant. What does God do in the meantime with the unrepentant? Well, what God does is he forbears. That word's used a number of times in the New Testament. It's implicit a huge number of times in the Old Testament. There are so many times in Israel's history where the prophet or whomever else is writing describes a situation where God is forbearing with his people. The other word that we find is the word patient, that God is patient with his people. So how does it work out? What does that forbearance look like? Firstly, what does God do now? Well, what God does now is he defers final, full punishment. One of the things that we come to understand as we go through scripture is that punishment can be kind of right here, right now, but there is a then forever punishment. It is perhaps what makes sense of Numbers chapter 14 where God says to Moses, I forgive them and I'm punishing them. How can that be the case? Well, it can be the case if that punishment is not a final eternal punishment. If that punishment is a limited temporal punishment. So what God does when he forbears is he defers that full and final punishment. And I think actually if we look through scripture, we'll sort of get the impression that that is what God has done since the fall. The description in a couple of New Testament letters about God holding angels over for final punishment and the whole way in which he deals with humankind suggests that there is very definitely there can be a here and now punishment that is not a final eternal punishment. So what God does as he forbears is he defers that final full punishment. In relating to people, he both blesses and curses with the same aim. What's his aim? As he blesses and curses, his aim is their good. Now, that's strange to us, to think that you can bless and curse and go the same direction. But we see it with God's people. 
When God's people will not turn back to him, though the prophets keep on warning them, then God's punishment comes and what happens? Lo and behold, the people say, which they refused to say before, the people say, we are wrong, God. We have sinned against you, God. We want to come back to you. And so the cursing ends up being for their good because they turn back to God. He blesses and he curses with the same aim to turn people back to himself. Now, thirdly, he awaits repentance. He awaits repentance. Then, fourthly, he will vindicate his name in final judgment. Okay? So we get, what does God's forbearance do now? Well, God's forbearance defers final punishment, blesses and curses for good, awaits repentance, then it will come to an end. And he will vindicate his name in final judgment. Okay, let me read through a couple of passages where we see this. Romans chapter 2 from verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Okay, you see it there? Briefly in those verses, that combination of kindness and forbearance and the reality of final judgment. Or in Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 6, which we read uh, earlier on. Talking about Jesus, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. See that, what we said before? If God is just, he must punish all sin. But we don't see that full punishment of all sin because of God's forbearance. God still must be just, so what is the description of what he's doing? He is forbearing. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now you remember that I read it, substituting the word righteous and make righteous for the word justice, because it's the same word. Or in Acts chapter 17, which we also looked at. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Okay? So we're saying when God overlooked such ignorance, God was acting in forbearance. Now, we can also see most of it uh, in 2 Peter chapter 3. Starts off with the scoffing. <clears throat> Where is the coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has been since the beginning of creation. 
But they deliberately forget that long ago, by the God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So the first thing he has to do is to say, you don't think God is punishing, you think the coming is never going to happen, well, just think back and remember what happened in the days of Noah. You think God is unable to judge, think again. Actually, he's got the future one planned as well. There is a final day of judgment. But then he goes on to say, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient. He is forbearing with you. Why? Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So that is what God does with the unrepentant. God keeps on actively waiting. He's not sitting back on his hands saying, I wonder whether they'll turn. God, as Paul says earlier in Acts chapter 17, uses the whole circumstances of our lives so that we might perhaps turn to seek after God and find him. That's what God is doing. He is forbearing. The pattern, I think, is the pattern that ought also to apply for us. So now, we defer final punishment to God. You see, the pattern is not running through parallel, one, two, three, four. I'm actually bringing the last thing into the first for us. Now, we defer final punishment to God. Now, we bless and curse for good. <clears throat> now, we await repentance and therefore the possibility of reconciliation. And finally, we long for God to vindicate his name in final judgment. This is not the option we take when we don't feel like forgiving. Okay, this is the, not the option we take when we don't feel loving. Why is God forbearing? Because of his love towards his creatures. Why does God forgive? Because of his love towards his creatures. Why do we act in forgiveness? Why do we enact forgiveness? Because God has loved us and so we love one another and we, out of love, enact forgiveness. Why are we forbearing? Because... We are acting in love. Now, I want to say that because sometimes we're given two alternatives. You're either being forgiving or you're hating. No. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says there is a real difference between repentant and unrepentant wrongdoing and the way to respond in love to each of those is to forgive or to forbear. Now, 
those two readings that we had from 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, I think, are an example of that being put into practice. Okay? Now, <clears throat> we do need to make a difference, and it will be picked up here as we look next at Romans chapter 12. There are two situations with the unrepentant person. First will be the situation where the authority charged by God to enact punishment has to deal with the unrepentant person. Okay? The second will be where we as individuals who do not have or are not in the position of authority with regard to that person are responding to the unrepentant person. Does that make sense? So, in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, what we're looking at is what Paul gives as instructions to the church as a whole, to the authority charged with the responsibility of enacting punishment. Okay? What we're seeing and what I'll read to us in Romans chapter 12 is much more in line with the individual. What do we do as individuals? Now, it may be that part of our response as an individual is to recur to the authority. All right? And it is appropriate for a person who punches someone in the street of King's Cross. Um, it doesn't happen at Port Macquarie. Uh, so let me just fill you in. In Sydney, in King's Cross, people walk around punching people in the head and killing them. Okay? It's a new fashion in Sydney. Now, it's appropriate for the parents of the person who was punched and killed in the street to take the puncher to the law and for the law to take him to the courts and for the courts to enact punishment. Right? But what do we see? We see every night on television those same parents, they're given their special interviews in which what they say is, we absolutely are so glad for the courts, but we want to tell you the courts are not enough. What we want is for the person to be dragged through the streets of Sydney so that their heels wear away. We want their fingernails to be torn out. We want them to suffer. So They want vengeance that knows no limit. Now, we do have the authorities that God institutes in order to effect punishment. We see ourselves as sinful human beings wanting much more than that. And when we as individuals might recur to the authorities, which is perfectly appropriate to do, what this passage in Romans 12 will say to us is we're not going to the authorities to get them to enact our personal vengeance because we're actually going to God with that difficulty that we have in ourselves. Okay? So, it's very appropriate. It should be the case that people are disciplined by the, are punished by the authorities that God has given us. We as individuals, this is what Paul says to us. Do not repay anyone... Oh, sorry, Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, 
As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Now we are to defer final punishment to God. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, that, I take it, is a description of doing good, blessing the person for their good, whilst you await repentance. Okay? In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter... uh, uh, Sorry, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the authority said, we are going to cut this person off from the church. We're going to cut this person off from all the good that is being part of God's people, from all the blessing that they receive within the body of Christ. We are going to curse them. Right? This individual description here is of doing good. If your enemy is hungry, feed him heading the same direction now given by this figure in doing this you will heap burning coals on his head it's a figure uh, that people are really sort of undecided as to exactly what it means one of the possible meanings is that same idea that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where the person is disciplined in order to have them come to repentance and so doing good or punishing in order to have the person's good achieved and their good will be their coming to repentance do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good now Understanding this from scripture really helps us in so many situations. Having a right understanding of what the unrepentant person uh, is saying, thinking and doing uh, is very important uh, in all sorts of situations where life and person might be at risk. People have real difficulty where a Christian wife might be being abused by her non-Christian husband, uh, where a boss at work uh, might be violating one of the female workers and the female worker is a Christian. A lot of Christian friends will say, you have to forgive that person, you have to keep relating to them. The unrepentant person is saying, I will keep on harming you, I will keep on hurting you. That's my my stated intention. And so understanding that about the unrepentant person really helps us when we're counselling someone or when we ourselves are struggling in that situation. Having not only forgiveness as an option of love but also forbearance as an option of love also helps us in that situation because often we lay guilt on the person that what you have to do is forgive and if you're not, you're unloving. No, we can say you need to forbear in that situation and in doing that you will still be being loving. Paul also 
um, highlights the difficulty involved in that kind of situation when he says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now our ability, our opportunities to feed our hungry enemy may be very limited. And sometimes it may be that through the Christian community, part of that feeding of the hungry enemy is done by others in the church, not by me directly. Okay? <clears throat> but by understanding forbearance as the option that God takes with the unrepentant sinner and that we also ought to take this option, it opens up all sorts of opportunities for us in our dealings with others. I hope, I actually think that it would be almost impossible for you not to hear me saying that in this, love is the key. Should we act in love? Always. Should we forgive? Not always. Love is not the same as forgiveness. It mustn't be confused with it. Forgiveness can be an expression of love, but it is not the only expression of love. Love is the motivating force behind forgiveness, uh, behind forbearance, just as much it is as it is behind forgiveness. Okay. So in this next week, imagine you're in the situation, it might be your children, it might be someone at work, it might be your spouse, it might be well. I mean Wherever you're with people, you're with sinners, so there's always going to be the opportunity that someone will wrong someone else. Always the opportunity where you might wrong someone else. So what you'll need to be able to do is carry the pattern in your back pocket. If you haven't got pockets, perhaps in your handbag. And suddenly the situation arises and you say to yourself, hang on just a minute, I can't respond to you right at the moment. I've got to pull out the pattern that we just learnt this last week and I'll have to think about it a bit because I'm not quite sure how I'm going to do it in this situation. Well, what do we do? When uh, we were students in our early years in medicine, we had to go to the hospitals. We started uh, with an afternoon a week in second year. The first thing that we were taught to do was to take a history and do a physical examination. My first medical history took five weeks to do. Uh, fortunately, the patient hadn't died by then <laughs> and their treatment wasn't dependent on me taking their history, but that is how long it took me to take their history. We got given a, a form of history taking, a form of history taking that was actually going to direct us towards what was going on with the person and also make sure that we didn't miss anything that might be going on with the person. It was very long. The next one took me almost as long. The physical examination, I used to have to send the patients away for lunch breaks in the middle of doing that because that took so long as well. By the time I graduated, I was still one of the slowest in my class, in my year, at taking a history and doing an examination. By the time, however, I got to my third year of practice, I'd caught up with everyone else. And those 
who were equally slow as me, we actually picked up more things than a lot of others. Now, you had to start slow in order to be able to get fast. And that's what it's like for us living the Christian life. When we come into a new area of the Christian life, we have to start slow. And we have to go over it again. And we have to, but what did he say? I don't understand. But didn't we do this in Bible study three weeks ago? And are we doing exactly the same thing again tonight? And I don't, we have to start slow. And we'll be keeping on going over it. But if we do keep on going over it, we'll actually get faster. And if we don't cut corners, then we'll be bringing in those things that God says will need to be part of our lives. I remember uh, talking with someone who said to me one Sunday morning after church or one Sunday evening after church, um, <coughs> one of the people I work with um, is a lesbian. I know she is going to ask me to attend her lesbian wedding. Now, they weren't formal official weddings, but she said, I know she's going to ask me to attend her lesbian wedding. I had a talk with my husband and he says I shouldn't go. I was wondering what you think. Now, at that point, maybe I should have said, well, hang on just a minute, that's not fair to have set me up like that. Um, but I said, look, uh, what are you doing after Bible study on Wednesday morning? Uh, I'm free, okay, come and we'll talk. So uh, she came in and I said to her, here is the list of things in the Bible that we're going to have to look at in order to, for you to get an answer to whether you're going to go to your friend's lesbian wedding or not. <laughs> so we went through it all. And as we went through, she was saying, oh, that's like. And she was picking up and connecting all sorts of things that I was saying to her. A week later, she came back and she said, I knew it was going to happen. I knew, I knew it was going to happen. On Wednesday night, there we were, we were working, and suddenly everybody was gone out of the ward. I've got no clue where they went. We were working in intensive care. They shouldn't have disappeared. But, she said, it was just the two of us and we were going to have our break together and only the two of us were going to have our break together. So she, I knew she was going to ask me. So then she recounted the whole conversation. And as she recounted the whole conversation, if I'd had the piece of paper in front of me, I would have gone like this to her. Tick, tick, tick. All the way through. Everything that we talked about. It was all there in the conversation. Not kind of parroted back to her friend, but actually taken in, processed and spoken to her friend at that time. You know what she said at the end? She said, if that's how hard it is to, the Christian to live the Christian life, next time I'm just going to pray about it and do whatever comes to me. <laughs> okay. So, we will need to learn to start slow. But the second thing is that we don't just live the Christian life on our own. We live it in a Christian community. We live it in, with brothers and sisters in Christ. Some of them, you may not have noticed, some of them are actually older than you are. All right? Some of them have, may have actually faced the same problem that you're facing right now. One of the great sadnesses in Wollongong was we had all of these retired guys who had been right in upper-level management in, in, uh, in Blue Scope and other really big companies. And here were young Christian guys who were heading into that. Do you think we could get the two together? No. 
But here these young guys had this resource and some of these guys had really thought it through Christianly. You know, they were fantastic in how they'd thought it through. That's what we've got. We've got one another. When I interview young married couples, I say to them, who are your points of reference? Who do you look to? Some of them just go, what what do you mean? Um, Others are a bit more with it. And some of them are really doing what I suggest to them. I say to them, what you want are people who show their working when they live. You want to be close to people who show their working when they live. You know, in maths, you had the question, and you had to get to the answer, but they wanted you to show your working, how you got to the answer. Our son, he <coughs> didn't learn maths at school, so he would actually work out all these clever ways of working out the answer. He'd put the answer down, and then he'd say, okay, so if I'm going to do that, well, then I would have had to, and I would have had to before that. And he would write his working out backwards in the space. You want people who show their working. And the people who are best at showing you their working are those with whom you have the casual conversation and they almost disappear. They're not boasting about themselves, they're just showing you their working. About their kids yesterday about their wife, about their husband yesterday, about their boss, about their employee, about all sorts of situations. And you think to yourself when you hear, boy, that actually expresses what the Bible says in this place and that place and that place. I never would have come to that. So not only do we learn slow, and it takes time in order to be able to live fast, but also we have each other. We have each other in the area of repentance and forgiveness to work out what we do and how we will express it. I think, for example, that Colossians 3 verses 12 to 14 kind of give us a snapshot of the living fast. You see, some of what will happen for us is that we'll be having to decide very quickly, are we forgiving or are we forbearing? But also, some of what we'll be having to decide is, hang on, there's repentance and I'm keen for forgiveness or with these two people there's repentance and forgiveness but there hasn't been punishment, there hasn't been restitution. Should we sort of backtrack a bit or do we just go on and so on? We're going to have to be answering questions like that. So listen to the way Paul expresses it in Colossians chapter 3 from verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with, same forbearing word, each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. See that? In just three verses, forgiveness, forbearance, love, all kind of interacting there in our relating with one another as the body of Christ. Now, I just want to read you one example as we finish, but I just want to talk about some books. Uh, 
Okay. There's only one book that I want to uh, recommend and that I can endorse without any equivocation, and that's it. <laughs> okay. The great problem with books about forgiveness is going askew at one point or another. Some of them go so badly askew, they're not even worth bringing up here to show you. Two books which are very helpful, though they're not actually dealing with forgiveness, are these. Love in Hard Places by Don Carson and God the Peacemaker by Graham Cole. What Graham does is talks about the atonement. What is it that God does in Christ for us? So he talks about sin. He talks about the nature of God. He talks about what Jesus does in the cross. And so a lot of what we've talked about in the first two talks is here in this book. And he applies it into our relationship with our God, our relationship with others, and our relationship with our world. So those are two books which, though not directly on the topic of forgiveness, uh, are good to look at. One of the uh, moments in history which really um, gave a good impetus, a good urgent need to move forward in understanding forgiveness was when abuse in all of its extent in our societies sort of became public. When we went from the situation where perhaps as many as one in three children will be abused within their families to actually talking about as many as one in three children being abused in their families, what happened was an enormous number of people were being seen by an enormous number of therapists and some of them said, this is horrendous, but there seemed to be two groups of people, those who were abused and their lives were destroyed and they've gone on being destroyed and they look like they'll go on forever being destroyed. But there's another group of people whose lives were destroyed but now they've got them back. And as they looked, they said, the thing which seems to make the difference between this group and this group is forgiveness. And then they said, what on earth is forgiveness? So there's a whole series of books that I've actually brought that are psychological symposia on forgiveness, where psychologists have worked away and said, what is forgiveness? Now, one of the interesting things in one of those is uh, they try and work out what are the steps, what's the process from the break of relationship to its restoration. And one of the processes listed out um, looks surprisingly like the kinds of things that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18. It'll talk about empathy, where what we've talked about is recognising ourselves, both the one wronged and the wrongdoer, as sinners before God whilst at the same time being able to recognise wrongdoing on the part of one and being done wrong on the part of the other. So a book that is helpful in that area is The Wounded Heart by Dan Allender. Perhaps the best book on forgiveness, but one which I think really stumbles at the point of what to do about uh, those who are unrepentant, is Embodying Forgiveness, a Theological Analysis 
by L. Gregory Jones. If I was going to write a book on forgiveness, it would be very much like this. It would just have some extra chapters. Um, this is a great book. It is very, very helpful. And he takes us through both biblical and sort of theological, in other words, putting together biblical understanding, as well as so many examples and the way the examples are given are so helpful. They're not like case studies. He'll go to books and he'll give us the, the line of the plot of a book that graphically shows what he's talking about and so on. It's really a, a very helpful book. And so in the last minute that I have, I want to read to you uh, one example that he gives in that book. A Turkish officer raided and looted an Armenian home. He killed the aged parents and gave the daughters to the soldiers, keeping the eldest daughter for himself. Sometime later, she escaped and trained as a nurse. As time passed, she found herself nursing in a ward of Turkish officers. One night, by the light of a lantern, she saw the face of this officer. He was so gravely ill that without exceptional nursing he would die. The days passed and he recovered. One day the doctor stood by the bed with her and said to him, but for her devotion to you, you would be dead. He looked at her and said, we have met before, haven't we? Yes, she said, we have met before. Why didn't you kill me, he asked. She replied, I am a follower of him who said, love your enemies. Forgiveness is at the heart of the good news in Christ. Forgiveness is at the heart of the life of those who are his. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you loved the world and that in your love for those who were still your enemies, whilst we were still sinners, you sent your Son, your only Son, whom you loved, that he might take on our form and nature, that he might humble himself and go to death on a cross so that we might be brought back to you so that his righteousness might become our righteousness so that his wealth might become our wealth so that the relationship that he shared with you might be the relationship into which you bring us. So fill us and continue to fill us with gratitude for your amazing love that we, through our growing desire and through the work of your Spirit, want to do your will, work to do your will, we pray that we might do so for your glory and that in this area of forgiveness and repentance and all that goes with it, we might act truly in Christ-like love 
so that others will come to know him. In whose name we pray. Amen.